Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Today, we're going to start by talking about the Morningstar Mirage, and then we're going to move on to some big changes at GE. So, Chris, the Morningstar Mirage, this is the title of a Wall Street Journal big expose that got released yesterday. And there was just a headline quote that really summed up the whole article quite nicely. The quote was, investors everywhere think a five-star rating from Morningstar means a mutual fund will be a top performer. It doesn't. That's the end of the quote. The Wall Street Journal did a lot of things. They tested Morningstar's rating back to 2003 and showed that funds with high star ratings attracted the majority of investors' money, but they failed to perform well. One of the things was like 12% of five-star funds did well enough over the next five years to earn a top rating, but 10% performed so poorly that they flipped from five-star to one-star. So you know, that's obviously not great. The Wall Street Journal also noted that there's this whole, the whole ecosystem for mutual funds revolves around Morningstar ratings. So they were saying, hey, these things really don't predict future performance, but they're what the whole mutual fund structure is based on. Morningstar shares were down 5% on the back of this article, but they bounced back today as the company fired back with a uh, letter that basically said, we strongly disagree with the Wall Street Journal article. So Chris, lots to discuss here. Really interesting stuff. I'll turn it over to you. What do you think about the Morningstar Mirage? Well, Andrew, you know, I am one half of a podcast with a hundred and twenty-six five-star ratings, <laughs> and uh, as such, I would it should like be to more. Tell it you, should be more. <laughs> that's out of one hundred and thirty. I would like to tell you that it is deeply significant, a lot of statistical significance there, and proves beyond any shadow of doubt excellence in future podcasting, or in their case, in picking uh, funds. It is a little bit like drugs that don't require FDA approval in that it's not only random, but it's certain that they don't work or they would have to be regulated by the FDA, at least in terms of kind of supplements and so forth. If this was a winning strategy where there was this rigorous value to what they're doing, you could have hedge funds kind of trading around these funds. It would be used uh, kind of mimicking their portfolios in a lot of other ways by real investors. I think that looking at the Wall Street Journal article, I thought it was devastating. I, I thought the Morningstar reaction to it was uh, not very good. And I thought the Wall Street Journal reaction to the reaction was doubly devastating. So that's interesting. Like to me, I, I just thought there was, it was just a whole, like a do about nothing. Like Morningstar stars, I understand that some people kind of thought of them like, oh, this is predictive performance. Morningstar was super clear. Like this is not used to predict performance. This is just looking at them historically. And I kind of thought they were nice for what they were. Like, look, five-star funds generally have lower fees than lower rated funds. So the Morningstar funds are pushing people into lower fee funds. You know, th- there were lots of articles where, there were lots of these little anecdotes where people were like really freaking out about what to invest in and a financial advisor would swoop in and be like, that's their funds got four star rating and that their funds got two star rating. Why don't we go with the four star rating? And they say like clients would just feel the sense of relief. So I get like, some people thought that these stars would assign future value, but that's almost on them. Like it didn't seem like Morningstar was really saying like, look at our star system. We'll predict future value. And obviously if it did, like they'd make more money just investing in these five star funds than actually providing the info. So I, I was just kind of surprised at how devastating the article was and everything for something that seemed kind of benign to good to me. Well, on the fees and tax efficiency, those are the two things you really can add value to make 
make sure retail investors are aware of. You know, they could also focus on something that would be a particularly good fit for taxable versus non-taxable. However, you know, gee, if in practice people are trading on these, there's the problem that you will tend to create more fees and taxes by changing than even if you stayed in a somewhat less tax and fee efficient fund, number one. But then the second level of problems is that you then are both corralled into a strategy that's probably in fashion if it had recently been performing well, but that also then becomes by the fact that they're rating them and giving these star ratings, I think it's going to be convergent. It's going to make them more like indexes and less useful versus just investing passively. No, so look, I definitely agree with that. But in many ways, like the critique was of Morningstar, right? And I think everything you're saying here is right. But those are more critiques of like the mutual fund selling system that's evolved around these ratings and just investor behavior in general, right? Like the way you get a five-star rating is you have good historical performance and low fees and stuff help with that. And I think the issue is people see five-star rating and they pour money into the strategy. So it makes you A, hyper-cyclical. You're always kind of investing in the funds with the best trailing track record. And B, I think it's really nice for brokers who are looking to constantly sell stuff. You say, hey, this is a five-star fund. Let's buy it. Hey, that fund's dropped from five-star to four-star. It's a dog. Let's sell it and uh, buy this five-star fund. And it, it creates fees. It creates tax inefficiencies. So, you know, just to me, in a lot of ways, like the simple story with the shocking headline was the Morningstar Mirage. But to me, Morningstar stars were doing kind of what they were intended to do. And the bigger issue is like a longer, more in-thought article of, hey, this mutual fund selling system is antiquated, expensive. It doesn't make any sense. Hey, investors tend to pile into things that have worked historically when it's probably like the wrong time to pile in after they've had this massive run-up. So, you know, I I just don't know. It's good for advisors and brokers. Part of their defense, I I think that I became more sympathetic to the Wall Street Journal and less to Morningstar as I watched their back and forth. The more they backed away from its statistical validity and just said, we're just organizing this industry mm-hmm. in a kind of subjective way or in a way that is simply descriptive of the past. I, I just keep coming back to that it's so misused. And when something is that consistently misused and you're aware of it. But let me just say one of their quotes was, we recognize and have often acknowledged the limitation of this system, basically more or less admitting it's not valid, but then say it's useful when combined with other factors. And I jumped on that and said, if you're not increasing expected value, it can't be a factor that weighed with other factors increases expected value. I mean, it's just, it's it's, it's not, that wasn't, uh, I didn't think they distinguished themselves in the back and forth with the subsequent Wall Street Journal. Though, you know, at the same time, even the Wall Street Journal article says like five-star funds tend to perform better in the future than lower rated funds. And again, I think a lot of that is probably because five-star funds tend to have lower expenses. So to me, it was just like, look, is this thing getting misused massively? Yes. And I I hate to see that, but I think it was more the system. You know, if there's a drunk driver, do you blame alcohol or do you blame the drunk driver? To me, it's the way that the thing's getting used almost. You know, I just kind of liked Morningstar for what it was just because it seemed like a somewhat simple way to say like, hey, this is a five-star fund. It's lower fees. Like a broker called it a cover your ass type service. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'll let you have the last thoughts here. My reform, if they could have a service that would really benefit retail investors instead of kind of of focusing on 
price recent performance, it would be able to toggle off price recent performance and have them just look at their wealth in terms of their cash flow, their NAV, and their dividends. And if they could just look at that quarter to quarter, they would probably be much less hyperactive. That's something more that a financial advisor is supposed to do, not not the Morningstar advisor, right? I I was thinking that they could do it. But yeah, no, I mean, the financial advisor, they're just going to love activity and this helps activity. I I, I think that Morningstar is pretty benign. They're certainly going to survive this, but it was not the press they were hoping to see when they woke up yesterday. So let's move on to GE. Last week, we mentioned Trian and their proxy battle that they, you know, almost won against PG. Another position of theirs in the same week, GE, they gave them a board seat. And at the time, some people were saying, whoa, it's kind of surprising GE would just kind of give these guys a board seat without even the threat of uh, any action or a fight or anything. And in hindsight, it kind of makes sense because GE announced Q3 earnings and they were just an absolute disaster. The company took out heavy restructuring charges. In the words of the new CEO, John Flannery, the results this quarter were unacceptable to say the least and things will not stay the same at GE. They cut their cash flow projections for 2017 in half from a projection they had made just in July. They lowered their earnings targets by a third. In response, the CEO is looking to sell more than $20 billion of assets. One of the assets on the block is their central locomotive division. They're looking to cut another $1 billion in costs. Some of those costs might come from their fleet of corporate jets, which has created some high comedy I'm sure we will discuss. They're making changes to their executive comp to better align the team with investors, and they might even cut GE's dividend. The stock is down about 30% so far this year. It doesn't look super cheap at a glance, but GE does have some great assets in there despite kind of their current performance. So some investors are thinking it looks interesting on some of the parts. Chris, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think about GE's turnaround efforts? I think I mentioned last week on PNG that you really can hide a lot of mischief behind a company with a stock price going up. Well, you can't hide any mischief when the stock price is going down. So some thing is simple that while it could have been improved, PNG had gone up. That made their defense against Tran a lot easier than in this case where you just kind of capitulate. Like, I'm not even going to try to defend this. Just come on board. Maybe you have some ideas. And I think it was good that they did that under these circumstances. I hope Tran will be helpful. Uh, I don't know that they will be. I think that an asset sale process for any company this big, but one that is such a conglomerate like this, is a good idea. Specifically to the locomotives, though, I would say that there are two comments, and, and maybe this isn't the rationale as much as what was mentioned, but to say that this is cyclical and currently slack is a poor rationale to say now is the time to sell it necessarily. In fact, a large conglomerate, one of the few good things about it is you have the wherewithal to survive a highly cyclical slack part of the industry. That's when you want it to be owned by GE. The conglomerate argument is always, hey, we've got this conglomerate. It's got this great balance sheet. When one of our divisions is doing well, we can take the cash flow and put it into a cyclical bottom. So I agree with you there. The first thing that jumps out to me in surprise here is I just can't believe how long Jeff Immel lasted at GE, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. you know, he, he was the CEO for 16 years. Now, the stock price performed disastrously under him. Now, some of that was it was starting from kind of like peak internet bubble G conglomerates are really inflated valuations. But, you know, the stock price was a disaster. When I look at his performance, the company almost went bankrupt in the financial crisis. Like that's got to be on him there. Mm -hmm. They sold NBC at a multiple that was horrifically low. Comcast bought it from him and Comcast celebrates the multiple they bought it at all the time. They kind of moved into energy right when oil was starting to hit its peak. And, And, you know, it seemed like they were more financially focused on financial engineering than actually running business. The first thing that jumps out to me is I can't believe Jeff Immelt lasted this long. And a lot of what Flannery, the new CEO, is saying, a lot of it makes sense. And, you know, it, it kind of makes me hopeful for where GE's headed. It's interesting if you look at the kind of people who can get 
to the very top of such a huge organization. The last two GE CEOs kind of handed their successor a company that wasn't much of a gift. And I think in both cases, and I'll say this this way, I believe both CEOs were at the time, at the beginning and throughout their career, overrated. In Welsh's case, he was very, very highly rated, but I would say he was overrated. And I think part of that is you just get this kind of politician-like salesy personality that is by definition extremely savvy with the press and with analysts and so forth, but that's a lot of their skill set. No, I, I think that's 100% right. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of Rex Tillerson. He left ExxonMobil. I, I think he was okay regarded ExxonMobil, but I think they've had a tough time of it recently. And, you know, he leaves and he goes into politics. Like, it seems like a lot of these huge CEOs, Meg Whitman, I actually, I think Meg Whitman ha- is pretty good b- based on the little I know about her, but she tries to become the governor of California. Like, it seems like at the top of these organizations, they're not even business people anymore. They become just these big politicians. And, you know, I'll just note, G's board had 18 people. Most of them were reported under Immelt's tenure. And I wouldn't be surprised if Immelt, by the end, he kind of became better at politics and playing the 18-person board than he actually was at running GE. Uh, I'll flip it over to you. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. So it's a tough, tough time for his successor. I don't love some of the rationale they're using, but I think the idea of really cutting costs, I think it's good. Good optics. I think it is good discipline. I think they'll be left with a better company. So yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see what he does. Yeah, and I, I love the thoughts on aligning more with incentives. You know, one of the things we were just talking about the politics, and one of the things that broke over the summer was a lot of the people in the Trump administration had been using private planes kind of inappropriately. You know, I think the the Treasury Secretary looked to use one for his honeymoon for a while. There was the HHS story that resulted in the resignation, and then it comes out here we're looking to cut costs and shut the corporate fleet down and there's the story in the Wall Street Journal article that Jeff Emmett would fly with two corporate jets, one of which was empty, so that if his first corporate jet could break down, he could use the second one. Obviously a terribly funny story of just corporate misuse, but I think it also speaks to once you get to the top, your incentives with investors can just become so horribly misaligned because you can just make a salary and kind of bake any expenses into this giant company's budget and nobody will really be able to pay any attention. I'll flip it over to you for last thoughts. I love airplanes and I I love the idea of perfectly having a seamless interaction between the value of your hours and the number of dollars that you have. But I think there's this vulgarity that we have a society where poor people have to pay cash and rich people don't have to take their wallets out of their pockets. I mean, these guys are getting big salaries. If you have some quirky perk that you like, take your comp and spend it on that quirky perk. And uh, airplanes, I think a lot of times, even though I think that you should be able to justify things in terms of the value of your time when you're spending money and the same should be true for a corporation. There's a lot of weirdness that goes on in upper echelons of big companies without naming any names. I know of at least one case where a CFO has told me that the only time he's seen his CEO try to come back to him and argue against him quantitatively on, you know, with metrics and so forth was on the issue of justifying corporate jets. So this is one that is really has a lot of enthusiasm for corporate jets users. And corporate jets are obviously the big headliner, but it's funny to me, like even things like company cars and stuff, like I'll see these companies and their proxy statement will say, hey, we're giving our CEO $40,000 annually for a company car allowance. And you kind of do the thinking, you're like, A, why does he need a company car at all? Why can't he just buy a car like a normal person? And B, 
who spends 40,000 annually on a car? You know, annually, like maybe you buy a 40,000 car that will last you three, five, seven years, but 40,000 annually, like these perks that these CEOs come to expect, it's so crazy. You know, they run these big public companies like they're their own business and their own balance sheet. It's just crazy. Last thoughts, your turn. You don't want your CEOs to be weird. You know, if you have consumer products that you're selling to, you know, having them totally separated out from kind of normal people's lives Uh, might not be a good thing in terms of their decision making. You know, it's funny because, you know, with uh, Jeff Immelt flying on corporate jets, he might not be touching the common consumer, but at the same time, like Steve Jobs was so famously weird. You know, he'd go on these weird diets and he did all these drugs and stuff, but he was maybe the greatest tech CEO. So it it is, I agree with you, but it is funny that there are these notable exceptions to the rules where the weirdness can create kind of greatness as well. So I don't know what to say. Anyway, ready to wrap it up? Yes. Great. So that's all the time we have for today. Before we, and just a quick reminder, as Chris said, you know, morning star ratings, star ratings. They're the only thing that matters to us. Please go drop us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating if you have a chance. Disclosures, Chris, I don't think we have any disclosures, so we'll talk to everyone next week. Bye.